You're listening to the podcast of Church of the Holy Cross in Popper Bluff, Missouri, a community of faith learning to do life together in the goodness of God. For more information, you can find us online at holycrosspb.org. The second reading is one of Paul's letters to the Ephesians, the first one. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, just as he chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless before him in love. He destined us for adoption as his children through Jesus Christ, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace that he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace that he lavished on us. With all wisdom and insight, he has made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure that he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to gather up all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In Christ we have also obtained an inheritance, having been destined according to the purpose of him who accomplishes all things according to his counsel and will, so that we, who were the first to set our hope on Christ, might live for the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and had believed in him, were marked with the seal of the promised Holy Spirit. This is the pledge of our inheritance toward redemption as God's own people to the praise of his glory. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I speak to you this morning in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Good morning. Today we are beginning a a series where we're tying together all the themes of the readings from the book of Ephesians that we just began today. So despite the gospel reading being the last reading you just heard, we're going to be focusing on that middle reading, the the second reading of Scripture that moves through the epistles. And as I said, Ephesians begins today. So you need to know a little bit about uh, the book before we can really get into it, because we're pulling out all the themes that Paul, maybe, is talking about here in, in this epistle. So Ephesus, as you can see here on the map, is over a little further towards Greece. It was part of Paul's third missionary journey where he went from Antioch over to Ephesus. 
Um, Ephesus was the first and greatest metropolis of Asia. It was a vast port city, incredible commercial and cultural center. It was, had military importance. At the time that this epistle would have reached that area, there was a population of roughly 200,000, a little bit bigger than Butler County, right? Very important city. Only Rome and Alexandria were bigger and more prominent than Ephesus at this time. It housed the temple of, Ephes, uh, uh, of Artemis, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world was there. Um, here is a bit of a layout of what the city would have looked like during Paul's time. The big focus is the theater, where he likely would have spent some time and around this area is where, remember, in, in, in Acts, where they started marching around and yelling, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. They caused a riot, right? Because they loved this, this cultural center so much, and they took it as the gospel coming in as a great threat. Um, and so another place here, I'm not seeing it here, but there's the, the great library, which is here still standing. This is the front of the great library in Ephesus today. It's still a, a great tourist attraction. And so, however, the, there are some unique things about the epistle to the Ephesians. You know, we ascribe it to Paul, and it is one of Paul's letters, maybe, because it's not quite clear. It's a little bit different, but most likely it was written by um, maybe one of his uh, scribes, right? We know that Paul had other people write things and would send them off, so maybe it was specifically by Paul but we know that the themes and the words are explicitly and directly Pauline. They come from Paul in one way or another. And along with that kind of ambiguity and that kind of odd thing about the book of Ephesians, we also don't know if it was written straight to the Ephesians. And the reason we know this is the first few early documents we have of this book don't have from Paul in the greeting and don't have to the church in Ephesus in the greeting. They're kind of laid out uh, 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 blank there. And yet the rest of the, the epistle, the rest of the letter, lays out these clear things that we know Paul talked about, specifically like in Romans. And so what this letter probably is was a blank letter that Paul wrote or some of his followers wrote and, and intended to be read by numerous churches. So it was sent out to be read and sent around to all the churches more directly than like some of the other epistles, which were first directed to a particular church and then sent out and around. And what we know about this book is that it's like, kind of like the queen of Paul's epistles. Romans is, you know, Paul's big magnum opus, this dense theological, beautiful work. Ephesians takes a lot of those themes and breaks them down and puts them in, in, in more condensed form. Um, uh, John Calvin's the one who called it the queens of Paul's epistles. Uh, epistle. So here's a, bit, a few of the big themes, right? Christ has reconciled all people to himself and all people's come to be one, come to one another in his church. Ephesians emphasizes the universal sovereignty of Jesus and the call for the church to model the cosmic re uh, reconciliation achieved by God through him. If we look and break out the epistle into two big parts, we see two main clear themes. Uh, chapters one through three are the gospel story. Chapters one through three lays out doctrine real clearly about what the gospel is and how big it is and what all it takes on. Chapters 4 through 6 gets real practical, gets down to some nuts and bolts things, even about submission and, and husbands and wives. He breaks down all of it in real practical ways. So it starts with God's story and then moves to the specifics of our story. And throughout the series, we're going to get and hit each of these important uh, things that Paul is communicating to us. 
But our, 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 our uh, reading today is uh, verses 3 through 14, 1, 3 through 14. And what you don't see is that this is one single sentence. It's incredible. Imagine reading this as one single thought in the Greek. There's no punctuation, right? It's one big thought. Paul is just railing, right? He's just going to town. And the impression that I get, the first thing that I hear in this is joy, right? Doesn't Paul sound so joyful at what God has done? And also not just joyful with what God has done, but the implications of what that means. God is doing something incredible in and through the church. So what's, what are we missing? Because this joy of Paul, sometimes we don't experience, we don't think of. It's not the first heart reaction, the knee-jerk reaction when we think of life in the church, which is what Paul's uh, epistle is writing about. Paul presents a vision of the church in which the peace of God is realized and is inclusive of all groups that would naturally be at odds with one another in their natural environment. For many of us, I think when we think of church, we think of the abuse scandals that are so prominent. We think of communities that are marked sometimes more by by bullying than blessings, by hypocrisy than holiness by pain and peace. And yet we hear Paul in this epistle talk about the beautiful reconciliation that God is doing between all peoples through his church. He talks about not only in the church, but that through the church, God in a cosmic way is reconciling all things to himself. He says in verse 5 that this life in the church is marked by the good pleasure of his will. Good pleasure, God's will. Ephesians describes communities marked by a culture of goodness. So how do we nurture a church culture that's marked by goodness? How do we live into that reality? That's the big question that we're asking as we approach the book of Ephesians. And the big idea that we're working with through this whole series is this. Life together in the church is life together in the goodness of God. That's what I hear Paul getting at throughout this whole book, throughout this this series. So why life together? Why life together? We hear this in verses 12 to 13 towards the end of the passage, so that we who were first to set our hope on Christ might live for the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Why life together? In verse 10, Paul goes on and says, as a plan, the church is, he's talking about the church, as a plan for the fullness of time to gather up all things in him, things in heaven and on earth. The first thing that we have to know as we approach this is that God's church is not plan B for the world. God's church is is God's plan A for redeeming not just the people that you're sitting by today, But through the church, God is reconciling the entirety of the cosmos. That's what that word is, all things, is the cosmos. The fullness of all creation is being reconciled through his church. No wonder Paul's kind of freaking out and writing things without punctuation marks, right? That's a big statement. But what is the basis of our life together? See, it's not just life together, right? I'm I'm a member of a, a, a civic club in town, right? If you want to just have life together, you can do those things. 
You know, there's all kinds of fun things we can do to, to meet people and to engage in, in life together. But there's something unique about the church. It's built on a different reality. Life together is not just life together for the sake of life together, but it's life together in the goodness of God. And so before we can really dive into the rest of it, we have to ask, what is goodness, right? Goodness is something, it's kind of instinctual, right? We all know when something's good. If I say this book is good, we have one idea of what that might mean. But if I really try to define what is good, it gets a little difficult, right? Philosophers wrestle with this a lot. What is good? It's a whole school of thought in itself defining what is good. It's kind of like, what is yellow? Well, yellow is a color, but define yellow. Well, it's when light reflects off of Kim's shirt and bounces off the rods in my eye, right? But that, that doesn't really define what is the experience of yellow. How do we define what is good? It's the same kind of difficult question that we approach when we ask, what is good and what is the goodness of God? Well, we kind of instinctively know, don't we? Like we know when something is good, and when something is not good, <laughs> right? And this is a theme, this is an important theme that we see traced from the beginning of Scripture to the end of Scripture. Good and goodness. See, goodness of God, if we're to, to break this down a little bit, the goodness of God encapsulates the presence of perfect ordering and peace. If we think about the, the way the Hebrews talk about it, shalom, right? Shalom's not just the absence of conflict, but it's the active, participatory presence of peace and good ordering. In Genesis 1, we hear God say, and it was good, and it was good, and it was good, and it was very good, right? This is the Hebrew word tob, tob, and it means kind of like when a, uh, a pilot is sitting doing his pre-flight checklist, right? And he's sitting there and he says, landing gear, good. I don't know, turn signals, good. I don't know what you, you ask when you're checking on a plane. But what he's saying is that this plane is perfectly aligned and ordered for the mission for which it is intended. Everything's in its place. Everything's working properly. Everything's at peace, and we're about to go somewhere. This is the first thing we see in Tob, and it, it st stretches out throughout the rest of Scripture, right? It says that only God is Tob. Only God is good. If goodness is something we instinctively recognize, then not good is something we instinctively recognize too. So whether you are a follower of Jesus, whether you're at home in his church, or whether you are far from him and don't believe any of that, what I would reckon is that you too would recognize that something is broken in the world around us. Something fundamentally is out of order in the hearts of humanity. None of us are quite what we should be or want to be. Quick flip through the news channels will tell us that. And so we hear through scripture that no one is righteous, truly wise. No one truly seeks God. No one does, told, does goodness. No one knows the way of peace. No one fears God. And then we come to the New Testament and we hear things like, God calls us to be good, to do good, to be known for good works. That's difficult, right? 
We know that something's broken. He's like my wingman over here. I can turn. You, you, you see night, uh, late night shows where, you know, they've got the, the, that's Mike for me today. I like referencing him occasionally. But if something's broken, if no one is righteous, if no one is truly good, and how does, then can God call us to be good, to do good, and to live in through good works and the goodness of his good pleasure? Well, I'm glad you asked. Let's look at our text. The rest of this sermon is going to break down the three or four big movements in the text today. And the first thing we see is this, that we are adopted by God the Father. We are adopted by God the Father. And to illustrate why this is so powerful, I want to tell you a story. A story of Isidore Ruckel. A lot of what scientists know about parental bonding and the brain and how that affects the the matter of the brain and future life comes from studies of children who spent time in Romanian orphanages during the 80s and 90s. After the nation's repressive government was overthrown in 1989, researchers began studying how orphans were affected by their horrible experiences in these orphanages. When Isidore Ruckel was six months old, he got polio. So his parents took him to a hospital, and they never came back to get him. Ruckel's parents then, well, he was then moved at the age of three and sent to an institution for irrecoverable children in Romania during this time. Ruckel says in that orphanage where there was often no one overlooking them and they were left to their own devices, he said there was no right, there was no wrong. You didn't know the difference because you were never taught. I was put in charge of kids. I treated them just the way they treated us. If you didn't listen to me, I'd beat you. If you listen to the workers over me, I'd make sure that you got a beating. And remember, I'm here longer than the workers will ever be. I live here. In 1991, when when Ruckel was 11 years old, he was adopted by an American family and moved to San Diego. At first, things went well, he says. And then he began to have a lot of conflict with his adoptive parents. And Ruckel recognizes that it wasn't their fault. And because he had experienced life in such a traumatic environment, that something as well was broken in him. He said, I responded better when you would beat me, or when you'd smack me around. And that never happened. When you show me kindness, when you show me love, compassion, it seemed to make me even angrier. No one is righteous. No one is truly wise. Ruckel goes on to say, I've become an advocate for fighting for other orphans. See, after his time in America and experiencing love and compassion and goodness and being adopted into a family that loved him, it wasn't all fixed overnight. It took time. But yet that first step of adoption is what turned his life into a new direction. It's what began redemption for Ruckel. He says, I've become an advocate for fighting for other orphans. And I believe that It has everything to do with my parents because I realize that love, what compassion and what affection can do in somebody's life, in their heart. That's what made the change for Ruckel. See, this is the foremost thing that that Paul is communicating through this this epistle. It's the gospel. Remember what the term gospel means, right? Evangelion, the good news, right? It's the news that is good. So he tells us this right off the bat in verses 3 to 6, that we have been adopted by the Father. He chose us. He chose us. 
the church. Listen to this from Deuteronomy 7, which kind of lays some of this out when he first chose the Hebrews. He said, for you were people holy to the Lord your God, his treasured possession. It was not because you were more numerous than the other people that the Lord set his heart on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. It was because the Lord loved you and kept the oath that he swore to your ancestors. And the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh of Egypt. And then Exodus 33 with Moses later on, he says, I will make, remember when he took Moses and Moses is out in the wilderness and he says, I'm gonna, I'm gonna pass by you, right? Moses wants to see God. Listen to what he says. He says, God says to Moses, I will make my goodness is what it says. Isn't that beautiful? I will make my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on who I will show mercy. Just as God's toe, God's goodness passed before Moses and he announced to his name, his name Yahweh, since that point, God's goodness has been inextricably connected to his name. You see, when we come to Christ, when we walk through the waters of baptism, we're not just saved, right? As if it's some kind of one-time thing that, that flicks a switch and then everything's wonderful like, like Ruckle, right? No. When we're saved, we're adopted into a family. And what happens when we're adopted? We get a new name, right? Just as God says, I will make my goodness pass before you, and goodness was associated with the name of God, so then now our being has shifted and changed because God the Father has adopted us and given us his name of Tob, of goodness, in the community of the church. He destined us for adoption, Paul says in Ephesians 1.5, as children according to the good pleasure of his will. So first, God the Father, from the foundations of time, orchestrated and planned for God's his plan A, the church, to be adopted and brought together, that Jews and Gentiles, as we hear, that were once far off and now are no longer are brought together into one people group in the church through which he's proclaiming and reconciling all of creation to himself. And number two, he does this through his son. I'm running the slides from my phone, okay, if you hadn't figured it out. I've totally gotten off. So you missed a whole bunch of, of cool pictures and, and, and references to uh, the, the, the scripture, so maybe I can get it back on track here in a second. But number two, he's redeemed us through his son. See, look at all that good stuff. He's redeemed us by the Son. See, goodness is only found in Christ, we hear in verses 7 to 12. Jesus is the only one who is elect, as the Scriptures say. And he alone is both the electing God and the electing human. Jesus alone is that which is perfectly told. And we are in him. Christ, Jesus, uh, Paul. I'm going to name them all. Paul says here in, in Ephesians 1, how many times? In him, in Christ, in Christ you have been. All of this, in him we are. We are now in the tome. And thirdly, we're sealed by the Holy Spirit in verses 13 to 14. In him you also, when you had heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and had believed in him, were marked with the seal of the promise of the Holy Spirit. This is the basis of what we hear in Galatians of the fruit of the Spirit. All these good attributes because we have been sealed with that. And lastly, verse 14, we inherit it with the church. We inherit it 
with the church. See, God didn't just save you as an individual. He saved you individually, yes, but he saved you personally and collectively through and in the church. It's all part and inherited in the church. So that we who were first, Paul says. Who's he talking about there? So that we, the Jews, and in him you also, were marked with the seal. He's reconciling these two warring factions together in his one church. Listen to this. So we often think that maybe sometimes uh, the people at the top of the social hierarchical ladder are the ones that um, would succumb to a heart attack sometimes. Like the top CEO, the head guy who's got it all on his shoulders, maybe he's the one who experiences stress the most. But what we see is that uh, the stresses of high positions aren't necessarily like the same as stresses in low positions where there's this faction between the two. Uh, Hear this. Sir Michael Marmot in his famous Whitehall studies showed that instead the lower one in the social hierarchical ladder, the lower one's life expectancy and susceptibility to psychiatric stress with an incremental improvement each step up. He showed that the stress hormones even reflected this. Those who were lowest on the social pyramid, who were ostracized, who were separated from the rest of the community, were the ones who often showed the highest stress hormones. It's wired in our bodies, this this understanding of reconciliation and community. And that's what we hear Paul talking about, so that we and you who are marked with the seal. We hear this talked about a lot in, in, in the world around us, in politics, in and governmental structures and nonprofits, and especially in the church where we hear things like beloved community, especially in the Episcopal Church here where we hear that term so much. And the reason is this, we hear that in the church, what Martin Luther King used to say. It's because the church is the only place where this can be fully realized. The hierarchical uh, separation and and status of, of the world around us cannot be broken down and cannot be overcome and our bodies cannot be reconciled in the fullness of what life is outside of that which has been reconciled in the church. The goodness of God is only found in our life together. This is what Ephesians lays out. Our goal, Martin Luther King says, in creating beloved community will require a qualitative change in our souls as well as a quantitative change in our lives. Or hear how Eugene Peterson says it. We submit ourselves to this blessing, that is the redemption of God, the adoption as his family. And this does not come easy for us. It takes time. It takes a great deal of getting used to. As we submit, our imaginations are baptized. We are immersed in the icy, swift-flowing water of resurrection and come up with all our senses tingling, our imaginations cleansed. We see what we, were, what we have never seen before. We thought we were looking for God, but God was looking for us. This is the first thing, the blessing. We start with God. If we start with ourselves, if we start with life together before we start with the goodness of God, we wander farther and farther into the dark woods. Snowblind, we circle our own tracks on polar ice. Or we trek across Sahara sands, setting our hopes on one mirage after another. See, the focus this morning, the focus as we begin this book of Ephesians of life together in the goodness of God is first on God's action, what he has done by adopting us through the Father 
in Christ, sealed with the Holy Spirit, and inherited in the church. So this is your call to obedience today. This is how you embody this passage. It's not by going and doing something first, but it's by reflecting on the goodness that we've received in Christ. What he's called us to in community. How does your experience with the community reflect what you've heard today? Where does it differ? What would it look like if we dreamt together what life and community could be like if our chief end and primary agenda in coming together was to collectively enjoy life with God in his goodness together? Instead of striving to secure something, if we strove to make tangible and enjoyable these spiritual blessings which are ours in Christ. None of us have done anything to earn or deserve this place in his kingdom or this community. And yet he has given it to us all in Christ. So your call today, if you have been baptized with Christ and are part of that community, is to reflect on this goodness this week. Take time to read the letter. 30 minutes. You can read through in much less time than that. Or if you take a long time like me, it'll take at least 30 minutes.